Hey everybody, Connor here. It's a new week, a new episode of Drama, and I am here to usher you in on this fabulous episode with Rob McClure, which is one for the ages, one for the record books, one of my all-time favorite chats that I cannot believe is recorded for other people to listen to. Okay, having an out-of-body experience, so random of me. But anyway, thank you for listening. If you're not already, follow us on socials at The Drama Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe wherever you listen to these podcasts. Follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Give us great reviews. If you love us, there's even more to enjoy every week other than your weekly Wednesday episode. Because Dylan and I give you bonus content on our Patreon, patreon.com backslash drama podcast, where for $5 a month we give you tons of extra bonus episodes where we chat about theater, pop culture, love, life, and drama. What more could you actually want so support the pod by subscribing to the patreon oh and i also forgot to mention you get access to our close friends on instagram which is where the real shit goes down you're gonna love this chat with rob thank you for finding us or continuing to listen you make this worth it we hope we're bringing you original fresh conversations that you can't get anywhere else thank you for listening to drama all right on to the show it's a good one Press play, curtain of an hour in, it's time to take spin, the shade and tea to spill, ooh, drama, oh, that's a tweet, did they book, who got nom, they option no, oh, I'm not well, what, what star will we, we talk to today? today, oh, that's a gag, honey, say no more, drama, drama, welcome to drama, a podcast that covers theater, pop culture, love and life i'm connor mcdowell and i am dylan mcdowell connor how are you on this evening (laughs) it is late you know it's we haven't done a pod this late into the night and by late into the night i mean 9 p.m eastern standard time okay am i am i a theater person in a long time in fact it's been almost a year and i was telling you before that i'm like kind of tired but we started talking so i started waking up but i was watching the new episode of Grey's anatomy season 18 18 uh, something like that. Yes, we are still watching. We're still watching, but I'm not, at home. I'm not as tired as, as they are. I just have to tell you, I, I really think it's it's the twilight years at yeah, yeah. The, the hospital. I mean, wait, did I? No, I, I wrote this down to tell you. Mm-hmm. Okay, did you watch the new one from last week? Like last I think week? so. I think so. Okay, at the beginning, Meredith, it, you know, the titular Grey, Meredith is in her kitchen at the start of the episode. She, like, randomly goes on a hike, and then she's she's in there, and she's talking to one of her sisters. I can't remember which one. And it's then the Katarina Scorsone sister. Okay, Amelia. And she's like... Amelia, yeah. And Meredith's like, where is Zola? Her, you know, like, 12-year-old daughter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, she's... Or her sister says to her, oh, she's watching the Whipple tape again. <laughs> and Meredith, just, like, without missing a beat, walks into the living room, and she's like... Zola, what are you doing? And she's like, Mom, Grandma was so good. She was so good. And I started laughing out loud at this scene because, first of all, it was so stupid. Like, I don't think a 12-year-old would watch a surgery tape just for fun, again, before the school day starts. But that's the the more miraculous thing is that the sun was out and the kid was <laughs> watching something before school. But I started laugh, laugh, laughing. I thought, this is why I'll never stop watching this show, this show <laughs> that's brought me so much joy for all these years. And It's camp um, at this point. It's such camp, but you know, they're tired, but they're fighting on. Maybe they're priming Zola to be, to take over as like a future Grey's spinoff lead. 
for when Ellen Pompeo is over it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. You never and, know. You know what? And, and Shonda has her big Netflix deal. It's happening. Mm, I right. can smell it. I can smell it. Oh, my God. I mean, I'll probably watch. Who am I kidding? Okay, Dylan, I'm so excited. <laughs> I am so excited. I know. I can't believe he said yes. I know. Can you <laughs> can you bring him in? Mm-hmm. Because I am starstruck. Hello. Our guest today is a Tony Drama League, a star and outer critic circle nominated entertainer who won the Theater World and Clive Barnes Awards for his performance in Chaplin, the musical. This Broadway season, as well as for a few performances in 2020, he stars as the titular role in Mrs. Doubtfire, delivering a tour de force transformation as the iconic nanny. Before slipping on the wig and the pantyhose, our guest has been established as a beloved, multifaceted star across the nation. He's appeared on Broadway in Something Rotten as Nick Bottom, and he also toured that role. Beetlejuice as Adam Maitland, Noises Off, Honeymoon in Vegas, I'm Not Rappaport, and of course, Avenue Q, for which he toured the country in as well. He's a regular at Encores, having appeared in Where's Charlie and Irma LaDuce, as well as at The Muni, where he starred in The Addams Family, Shrek, Jerome Robbins Broadway, Into the Woods, and Beauty and the Beast. He's also a Barrymore award-winning actor for his performances in the greater Philadelphia area where he resides. On TV, you'll know him from The Good Fight, The Bite, Evil, Person of Interest, Elementary, and more. For the film Recursion, he won Best Actor at both the Queens World and Williamsburg Independent Film Festivals. His charm, talent, and kindness have solidified him as a leader and friend to all in the Broadway community, guiding us through the lockdown with his videos and genuine spirit. We are over the moon to be chatting with him today. Please welcome to drama, Rob Rob McClure. McClure. I'm out. That was the sweetest introduction I have ever received in my life. Y'all made me sound real fancy. (laughs) You You are. are. I'm starstruck, (laughs) Rob. (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to be here. This is going to be fun. And thank you for thank you for staying up late on this 9 p.m. Listen, I joke, I joke, but I'm I'm awake anyway, so it's totally fine. But um, (laughs) wait, I just realized, are you Scottish, McClure? I am Scottish. Yeah, my dad's side is Scottish and mom's side is Italian. Oh, nice. Okay. It was nice for, for Mrs. Doubtfire because my um, dad's grandmother, I'm told, had a, it was the, f- the first generation in America and still had a Scottish brogue. So I'd like to think it was somewhere in there waiting to come out. What is her name again? Euphigenia Doubtfire, dear. <laughs> Euphigenia, E-U-P-H-E-N-I-A. Okay. Euph- no, E. Hang on, time out. E-U-P-H-E-G-E-N-I-A. Euphigenia. There you go. No, no bell. I just spelled it correctly. <laughs> no, that was great. I know. Can you use it in a sentence, please? Um, no, that that's amazing. And I love that there's some family roots there that the link you to yeah. it. I'm also glad that you're recording here in this room because I've seen some online videos and chats of you with this poster wall behind you. And I, I admire all of the show, the show, what are they called? Window cards. Window cards, yes, on display. Yeah, this is so my wife and I, when we when we got this house, we we've always said, like, you know, there are always those boxes of things in the basement and you go like one day we'll have a room where we put all that crap. Well, we finally have a room where we put all that crap and we call it we jokingly call it theater Applebee's (laughs) and and it is it's sort of unapologetically an explosion of of show stuff. But the thing that I love about it and the thing that I, I think not a lot of people realize when you're in the industry more than when you like go see these shows these shows are less about sort of a resume wall and more about every single one of those posters reminds me of about 120 people who changed my life every every one of them 
for the people listening can't see them, but there's like, it goes, but then it also goes around the other corner. Oh, wow. I mean, it's like, it's, it's everywhere. But um, it's more about the memories they provide us with than it is saying to anyone like, look at all the stuff we've been in, which is why it's on, it's in a game room that's on our third floor. So you have to get through two floors of normal adulting <laughs> before you get to Applebee's. Theater Applebee's <laughs> rivals Patty's basement. You know, mm -hmm. remember when we got to look inside her basement very early on in lockdown? Yes. That was a moment in <laughs> yes, time. Yes, I remember. Yes. <laughs> wow. Sure do. Um, Rob, of which poster are you most proud of? Ooh, that's a great question. Which poster am I the most proud of? Um, or maybe see. most proud of this evening, because <laughs> I'm sure they all are so special. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm going to say is this one right here, which was uh, it's called the 12 Dates of Christmas. And that's my wife, Maggie Lakis. And um, it was a one woman show that she did at the Act Two Playhouse in Ambler, Pennsylvania. And it was such a sweet thing. She got cast and was like, there is no way I by myself can entertain people by talking. Mm -hmm for 80 minutes alone. And she so rocked it. I was so proud of her. That's definitely one of my favorites. Um, she looks glamorous in that photo too. So she looks super glamorous yeah. in the poster. Yes. Um, and then the, the Muni into the woods poster is pretty good too. I love um, that. Ooh. It's got, it's got some, some Heather Headley on there. Heather Headley was the witch, right. which was no joke. That cast was pretty. You sad. were the baker, right? I was the baker. Uh, yeah. I wish I could have seen you in that. It was, oh, it was an amazing production. Oh my gosh. <sighs> that The song no that more show. brings out such an emotional response in me. And oh, yes. I feel like you would have just nailed it. Are you an into the woods fan? Oh, huge. Oh, yeah. It's okay. My favorite song time. Can I blow your mind then? Please, please. Okay. It's one of my favorites too. We'll get into which one is exactly my favorite in a bit, but Into the Woods. So through Honeymoon in Vegas, I got to meet and become familiar with Stephen Sondheim. And the first time that we got to sort of like hang out, he invited me to his apartment and I was trying not to desperately vomit adoration <laughs> at him the entire time. I was just like, be cool. Please don't nerd out too hard. But I couldn't help myself. And I said to him, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I have to tell you, my favorite lyric of all time from any song ever is from the song Moments in the Woods that the baker's wife sings and in Into the Woods. It's right after she's cheated on her husband with Prince Charming in the woods. And she sings the lyric, must it all be either less or more, either plain or grand? Is it always or is it never? And that's what woods are for, for those moments in the woods. And I said, that is one of my favorite lyrics ever. And he said, uh, oh, I'm glad you like that one. It's... um. It's one of my favorites, too, because of the implied double meaning. And I said, I said, what? And he said, must it all be either less or more, either plain or grand? Is it always or is it never? And that's what woods are for. W-O-U-L-D-S. When you can't have both. And I said, wait, time out. I just did it at the Muni in St. Louis, and it does, it's not spelled that way in the score. And he said, well, that's because that's not what the baker's wife means. The baker's wife means the woods, but he was hoping that people would hear, is it always or is it never? And that's what woods are for when you can't have both. And then, and then he goes on to say, you know, if you could technically do that to the whole show, into the woods, it's about the roads not taken. These are dangerous woods. I was like, wait, <laughs> what? I full body. We call those FBCs, uh -huh. Rob. Full body. Chill. And I saw your body like. <laughs> I know it was a physical yeah. reaction. So now I dare you go back and watch it again and let that enter your ear. It 
ends either well or bad, depending on how you look at it, but there will be tears and ice cream involved. <laughs> yeah. Wow. To get to hear that straight from Sondheim's mouth, yes. I cannot even imagine. Yeah. It oh was, my it, God. That that three hours was one of the greatest times of my life. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what was his connection to Honeymoon in Vegas? So he obviously is friends with Jason Robert Brown mm-hmm. and um, he came to see it out of respect and admiration for his friend. And, and I didn't know that he came until the opening number when I turned around and mm-hmm. spotted him fourth row center. Very tick, tick, boom. Yeah, very tick. Seriously. I know <laughs> more like tick, tick, try not to throw up. Um, <laughs> and after the show, he left. He didn't come back after. And I was devastated. It mm-hmm. was like if I've ever wanted to meet someone, that's who I would want to meet. Cut to him sending us an email that said, hey, I'm sorry I had to run after the show. I just wanted you all to know that after your opening number, I wanted to live in your theater forever, Steve. And I wept at the email and I responded and I said, as someone who has even dabbled in writing, I can't fathom living in your brain for two seconds. And he emailed me back within a day and said, you write? What are you writing? Come over. Let's talk writing. (laughs) Literally within a day and a half. And he was so generous and so kind. He's all the things that everybody says he is. He's also brutally honest in the best way as an artist. You get the vibe that he's just as brutally honest with his own work as he is yours, mm-hmm. um, which which makes you want to make yours better because it's coming from him. You know, it was it was an amazing time. Wow. How special. Yeah. So lucky to have had that. He taught you those lessons too in person. And oh, yeah, it was, it was really, I, uh, one piece of advice that he gave me that was really astonishing. I was, uh, I am writing a novel right now. And at the time I was writing it to be a musical and uh, I sort of gave him the pitch and told him what it was and what it was about. And he said, don't write a musical, right? This, this is a novel. And I said, oh, really? Hmm. Why? And he said, I can feel you limiting where your story is going because you're worried about how they will do it on a stage. And this story is too large for you to be worried about the medium with what you will be told. Just write a novel so that you don't think about, well, how would they do that if that happens? Your story is taking you places that someone will have to come up with a concept for in whatever medium that you do it. He's like, write it like a Pixar movie where there are no rules as to what can and can't happen because Mm -hmm. that's the story that you're, that you want to tell. And he was so right. So now I've been writing this sort of grand fantasy novel, his advice. He's just so smart. He's so smart. What like vein of fantasy is it sort of live in? Um, it is, it's an origin story for a sort of peripheral character in old fairy tales that we don't really think about that often. Um, okay. and sort of will redefine the way you think about that whole fairy tale because of the new perspective on an origin story of a peripheral character. Love. Very, I can, very I can tell cool. you more once we, once we click, once they stop listening, <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. Okay. Okay. Kind okay, of okay. Wicked vibes. You know, you're, you're. In a, uh, yeah, sure. Sure. You could absolutely say that. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Rob, I feel like. I, if I get you going on all these different topics, I'll never get to like certain career things. So I feel like I need to just like start diving into like questions Go or things I'm wondering about with your career. But before before anything else, we do like to check in with our guests. We do. We and do. Ask them how they're doing. Rob, are you well? <laughs> well is such a wonderful word. <laughs> <laughs> I get sh- yes, yes, and and I'll tell you something. Before the pandemic, I would have said yep. And I feel like a lot of us have learned that there's no reason to like stifle 
what what's really going on for you because what's really going on for everybody's complicated mm -hmm. and so for me right now i am uh anxious i'm eager to get back to doubtfire mm -hmm. i am i feel a little shut in i feel i can't wait for it to be warm out so that i can leave my house um i've got a three-year-old daughter who is in at the height of three nature <laughs> uh driving me the best kind of insane like there's a lot going on but yeah to answer your question i'm grateful and i am well yes you know it, it's funny you say that because we wa we had this podcast pre-pandemic and to watch yeah. the evolution of answers has been exactly what you mm -hmm. um right? what you just said I can only imagine the anxiety around you did a couple of previews of Doubtfire right before the pandemic. Then you shut yeah. down for a couple, like a year and a half or, you know, however long it was. I'm sure you could tell 18 me exactly months. 18 months. And then now you're paused again. So mm -hmm. I can. Thanks, Omicron. <laughs> thanks, yeah. Omicron. I know. You know what? We were there the day you guys announced that you were going to pause again. And we were like, oh my God, do we just see the last performance for like two or three months? This is crazy. How are you feeling about this this little winter break that you have pre re-entering Doubtfire for like the third or fourth time? It's really complicated. So I am I am thrilled that our producers thought outside of the box mm -hmm. in a way to keep our show alive because COVID was so horrific. Now, I say all of this with a larger perspective that this is showbiz with very little consequence compared to the people who are sick and pass away from COVID. So like what well, I say, all of this with perfect perspective, that this is just about our little show and that uh, I'm grateful for our health. However, with that said, you know, you spend years of your life investing in these shows with the hopes of them coming to Broadway. And it's hard enough without COVID the thousands of miracles that need to happen for a show to ever land on Broadway are hard enough. Right. Mm -hmm. So for us to get there and for COVID to be so horrifically timed for our show, both on the initial onset of COVID and then the the um, surge of Omicron mm -hmm. could not have hit our show harder and at a more inconvenient time. So it, it has been really, really hard. It, you know, I, I've been doing Mrs. Doubtfire now, including the workshops and readings for almost three years. And I think I've done less than 60 performances of it, <sighs> which is like, how are you? How have I done a show for three years? Yeah. And not been... <laughs> I've done over a thousand performances. Mm -hmm. So it is, uh, I'm so hungry to tell that story because I've, it's been inside of me for so long. So I'm, I, I cannot wait to get back. And I miss my Doubtfire family so much. You all know how it is. You know, oh, yeah. you, we fall madly in love with the show and each other. That's the, that's part of the job, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I miss them. I completely hear you. I mean, we loved, we chatted with Annalise, we chatted with Jay back in October and everyone says the same thing about how, you know, sometimes you're in a show and you're in a show, but other times you're in a show and it, it's that cheesy thing where they actually are a family. And it seems like the Doubtfire family is that. A hundred percent. And doubt, you know, I, I feel like you, um, and when I say you, I mean the Royal, you, we, <laughs> us, one, um, <laughs> adapts to sort of encompass the culture of the show you're in. Mm. So like you talk to people who have like done hair and at the end of hair, they're like, I want to have a threesome. You're uh -huh. like, Easy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think, I think I feel they're like saying people, other things too, Rob, but you know, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, like people, people do a show and then they come out the other side and they're like, I feel like the show has sort of changed me for whatever the show has to say. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like whatever the culture of the show is, well, the culture of Doubtfire, is how far would you go for your family? Mm -hmm. How far would you go for your family, for those who you love? And that gets inside you. It really does. So to be going on this two-year roller coaster 
of are we or aren't we with people who we deeply consider family has been really, really hard. It really has. Mm -hmm. Well, I think an audience is going to come find Doubtfire once you guys are back in performances, which I think when this episode is out, it'll be right around that time. Ah, so exciting. Very well timed, (laughs) very well timed. But we, I mean, as I said, we got to see it in very early January and I'm not just like gassing you up by telling you this, but your performance was unbelievable, Rob. I seriously oh. was blown away. I was so moved. I do not know how you d- you did it and do it and will do, you know, continue to do it. But there's no other feel good shows, new shows on Broadway right now. So why why wouldn't people come find it, especially right in time for summer? So mm-hmm. um, thanks so much. Yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And, and it's landing in a way I think even we couldn't have imagined. You know, I, I knew it was going to be funny and I knew that it would be moving because th- those are the things that, you know, the movie had going for them. You know what I mean? It was my, my uh, clearest memory of when the movie came out was all of my friends who were, you know, children of divorced households who up until that movie, any movie about divorce was about, can the kids get them back together? Mm -hmm. And the happy ending was them getting them back together. Like parent trap, trap. you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and doubtfire was the first one to go like, no, maybe we're all better off with them apart. And, just choosing to redefine family. And that meant a lot to to uh, my generation. And we're finding that that's landing in a new way now with the show. And that expansion of redefinition of family, the way the musical incorporates the brother and his partner, Jay and Brad, expanding that definition for a 2022 world in terms of redefining family, it really is landing in a way that is profound. And I can tell you, because you just had Annalise on, we sing a song in act two called Just Pretend. Mm -hmm. And it's right after um, I I lose custody, uh, sort of the jig is up and uh, and I lose custody of the kids. And we're out on the steps of the courthouse. And she says, if your love for mom has ended, couldn't your love for me end too? And the lyric that I respond with is, no, that could never end. Uh, It's different with your kids. One performance, we we sing that song almost completely in profile. And I can see the first few rows of the house left section of the orchestra in my periphery while I'm singing to Annalise. I said, no, it's different with your kids. Please, I I promise me you know that. And a middle-aged guy with like a 10-year-old girl in the front row reached over and grabbed her little arm and she went. She started crying and then they started crying. And I'm thinking, I have too many words left to say to start crying. If I go, (laughs) I'm not coming back. But that is one of those moments where you go like, oh, right. At least half of the kids who come to see this will be right in the thick of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like for anyone who says like, why Doubtfire now? That's she's why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there, that's why. And it it is a deeply resonating thing for these kids. And uh, I I just am so proud to tell that story. Oh, that's beautiful. Art and life imitating each other. What what could be better? I have tears in my eyes that I will, that thankfully the, uh, the filter on zoom has taken care of, but um, that's so incredible. I can only imagine the layers too of, I mean, you have a kid as well. So you know what it's like to love a child and how it's different. And that's what I've heard at least. And I thought I, I thought I did, you know, I I thought I did. I'm not one of those like crazy method actors. Who's like, I'm playing a heroin addict. I have to try heroin. (laughs) Like, no, you don't like use your imagination. Um, But I do, I'd be lying if I said, I didn't think having a kid changed my perspective on that. You know, you think you can imagine how much you'd love your own kid. And then it happens and you just go like, wait, this is so (laughs) I could tell one other quick story. When we were doing the show in Seattle, we broke all their box office records at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle. And it was really exciting. And we were performing over the holidays. This is of 2019, right before the pandemic. Okay. And, And I was doing 
the week of Christmas shows. And two days after Christmas, I run the seats for my warm up. I run like a sports stadium. I run through the so aisles. Like I have the so I always get playing the, and uh, yeah, ex- 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 <laughs> sometimes the sound person will do that. And it's <laughs> adorable. But I, I get to know the house staff, the ushers and the house manager, because I'm always out in front of house running the seats before the show starts, before they start letting people in. And uh, the house manager in Seattle said, hey, Rob. So I go over and she says, can I tell you something cool? I said, please. She said, in the lobby right now, waiting to get in is an older couple, two women who saw one of your previews here in Seattle, love the show. And for Christmas, got their 14-year-old foster daughter tickets as a Christmas gift to come see the show tonight. But after the show, they're telling her that they're adopting her and they want to use the message of the show to be the new, the thing that breaks the news to her. So right after I'm giving this speech about like, some families have one mommy, some families have mm-hmm. one daddy, some families have two mommies, some families have two daddies, some, as long as there's love, none of it matters. And then to think that right after curtain call, they're going to be telling uh-huh. that kid, you know, that's the stuff that for two years sitting in my house, waiting for the show to start back up and, pe- and you know, hear people who say like, why another adaptation of a mu- movie into a music? Why this show now? Who needs it in 2022? Which is so amazing because that happens to like literally you announce anything uh-huh. is going to be on Broadway and all these trolls come out. But, it, you know, I knew I got to see firsthand uh, the power that this story has. So I, I, I was I couldn't wait that, you know, that girl really got me through the pandemic in terms of going, I'll wait. Yeah, I'll wait. Waiting to tell this story again is worth it. Oh my God, I'm, I'm yeah. speechless, which is great because we're on a yeah. podcast. So, um. You're a master storyteller. And, and you know, it's, I think the show, I do, I do hate the discourse online about shows that people haven't seen. It's always interesting when people have these judgments in advance and, you know, most of my favorite musicals and call me basic or whatnot are adaptations, you know, of, of movies. I have a poster for once right behind me. You know, I have a poster for Matilda behind me. Like there's all these great shows that, you know, if it's a great story, it'll be told again. For and for every great adaptation, there are horrible. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> but, the, but the notion that adaptations are somehow off limits—it's mm-hmm. like you don't know what bringing that story into a different medium does for the storytelling itself. You just don't mm-hmm. know because you don't know what has been what the new medium brings to that story. Absolutely. You know, and it's silly to think like, oh, are there moments of Mrs. Doubtfire that sing? But you go. If you go on YouTube, you can find all these amazing deleted scenes from the film, like the one where Daniel Hillard and his daughter are having a conversation on the steps of the courthouse after he loses custody, which is she says to him uh, in that deleted scene, you're act, you're an actor. Why couldn't you just pretend? Mm. And that's the name of the song in act two that no one would ever know is a deleted scene from Mrs. Delphire. But that's what th- that those are the opportunities when you change mediums mm-hmm. uh, to find reasons for stories to sing, because that ultimately that in my mind is what makes a good musical adaptation yes. is does this story sing? For me, my belief is that our writers, our brilliant writers, the Kirkpatrick brothers and John O'Farrell, the thing that they saw that was the opportunity for that story to sing is what's going on for the kids Mm. that was that was what the movie didn't explore that that cracked open the story and made it sing Mm -hmm. and and that if if you haven't seen it how would you know that you know but i i do and i don't just think that goes for adaptations i think there is just sort of a general the internet allowed people to think that you know it's so funny when i when i remember the internet because i am gonna turn 40 in june unbelievable um, (laughs) 
senior citizen, senior no. citizen. <laughs> no, stop, um, stop. But I remember like, okay, when the internet showed up, the first thing that could happen was AOL chat rooms, mm -hmm. right? Like, and what was the first thing people did in AOL chat rooms? They would go on, find someone and say like, your mother is a whore mm -hmm. and laugh and run away because there is the misconception of anonymity that gives people the ability to hide. And if they're struggling, if they're going through any kind of damage, it's like toddlers on a playground. Mm -hmm. It's like, if I can, if I can make myself feel better by tearing you down, I will. And the internet provides a place of anonymity with which people think they can do that. So it's always the first thing that right. happens. The, the first response to any news is, this is dumb and you're stupid <laughs> and your mother is a whore. And you're like, wow, I thought we were past this, yeah. but I clearly were not. So I, you know, you, you can't, you've got to take it all with a grain of salt. Well, I think that so many moments sing. And once, once we get a cast album, I think people are going to only realize it sings even more for Doubtfire because yeah. the, the restaurant scene, the you <laughs> cooking, the dinner that ends up just being takeout. It, it's, it's all so amazing. And the voices that you do, the way that you flawlessly slip in and out of different characters and accents and everything, it is unreal. You do a, a Lord of the Rings. I don't want to give too much away. For anybody. <laughs> yeah, it was like insane. I know we don't like to do, we don't like to always say this sort of thing, but this is your Tony, whether, whether it happens or not. But, <laughs> oh, mm. you know, I, anytime, normally I'm yeah. like, ah, shut up. <laughs> the, the only... The only reason why that would be lovely, and I've thought about mm. this many times, the only reason why I let myself for even the slightest moment go, could you imagine if that happened, is because it would give me the opportunity to thank two dressers at the Fifth Avenue Theater named Randy and Marlis, who helped me create the backstage traffic that wow. makes this show possible and couldn't come to Broadway to do it because they have roots in Seattle mm -hmm. and they wanted to stay out there. I asked uh -huh. them, but they didn't want to. But it would be an opportunity for me to publicly acknowledge them in a way that I would be really proud of. Uh -huh. That is, that that's like uh, the only the only reason why I let my brain go mm -hmm. there. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? Yes. Because uh, I know they'd be somewhere in Seattle watching TV going like, holy. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I actually was curious about that. I want to give you an opportunity to shout out anyone or any inspirations that did help you create this character because, I mean, it's like Dylan said, a tour de force performance. Oh, well, certainly Robin Williams, right? We have to start there. And Robin Williams, there was a freedom to his comedy. You know what? I teach a lot. And one of the things I teach, especially to young aspiring performers, particularly about comedy, is that we're all sort of born with a filter in our head. And when you're a kid, it's squeaky clean. So you're able to like go outside and play Ninja <laughs> Turtles and Ghostbusters on your lawn. And by you, I mean me. <laughs> go go out and play Ninja Turtles and Ghostbusters on your lawn with, without caring about the people in cars going by seeing you do that. And then as you get older, I feel like the filter gets clogged with more and more junk about expectations of your behavior. So what you end up letting out is some like safe, non-judgmental version of your initial idea. And Robin Williams, like not only cleaned out the filter, he like burned it. <laughs> <laughs> like, he had no, he had no filter at all. Like he was raw instinct. He was like a live wire. And if that is not inspiring to somebody who's heading into playing a part, especially a part like this, and then, you know, you combine that inspiration with being directed by Jerry Zachs, who gives me the permission to say like, no, but I, I don't want your unfiltered version of his unfiltered version. I just want your unfiltered mm -hmm. version. 
So now I'm going, okay, what, what is my live wire? What are my instincts? Uh, what are my sort of unleashed, unfiltered instincts? And he gave me the freedom to sort of explore. So any of those crazy, you know, I think I do some somewhere of 40 something voices <laughs> in the show. They were all sort of like in the script, they would write like does a voice and they'd have like a suggestion, you know, the, uh, of something like, but then we'd get in the room and they'd be like, who do you do? Every time we do this scene, you could do three different voices there if you want until we find the gold and then we'll pick them. So wow. rehearsal was such a party um, because we were trying so much. So Robin Williams is a huge one and Jerry Zaks is a huge one because when we started uh, rehearsing, I remember I came home one day and I said to my wife, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like starting to feel myself. Like I feel like I, me and Jerry Zaks have the exact same sense of humor and it's, and I'm a huge fan of his. So that's making me feel really good. And my wife in perfect, like perfect wife, knock you down a peg style said, do you think that's probably because every show you loved growing up was directed by Jerry Zaks? Like, you saw that funny thing happen on the way to the forum revival with Nathan Lane, and David Allen Greer and Whoopi Goldberg. How many times that Nathan, the Nathan Lane guys and dolls, how many times lend me a tenor, the original lend me a tenor. Do you think you have the same, same sense of humor of, as him because he created your sense of humor? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. There, there is that. Yeah. Maybe that's why we have the same sense of humor because he built mine. You were preparing your whole life for this moment. Exactly. Then. Yeah. Or he's <laughs> been preparing me my whole life. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's amazing. Speaking of your wife, Connor and I had the pleasure of seeing the two of you play opposite each other in the Something Rotten oh, tour great. in Cleveland, yeah. where we are from. Oh, amazing. And I know you I spent love a little bit of time I, in Cleveland. I, yeah. I have. I played Cleveland Playhouse many times, both on both. Mm -hmm. I, I played uh, Playhouse Square touring several times, but I've also just played Cleveland Playhouse. Ken Ludwig, the playwright, loves to do world premieres out there. So I've done a couple of world premiere Ken Ludwig plays out of Cleveland Play. I love it out there. Yeah, it's awesome. Lucky's. Lucky's for brunch in Tremont. That's my jam. Amazing. Mm. I love that you know the local <laughs> spots too. Yes. Um, I'm pretty sure we would have seen you then in Avenue Q on tour in yeah, 2008. Did you take it to Cleveland? We sure did. Okay. We saw you. And, and yeah. you know what? The actress who played Kate Monster. What? Yeah. I don't remember her name, but I can picture her face. I was like obsessed with her. Kelly Sawyer. Kelly so Dylan, was that not her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you. I, I remember... You know, YouTube existed, but you could also like rip songs from something else. There was a yep. recording of her and I put it on my MP3 player. It was from LimeWire. It was from LimeWire. Lime oh my I God, LimeWire. Oh my God. I, for whatever reason, was like obsessed. Well, because she's amazing, but I was obsessed with her rendition of Fine, Fine Line. I had on my MP3 player. I love it. Literally obsessed with her. But yeah. You were amazing in Something Rotten. And speaking of like shows that it's an original there, but yeah, too ahead of its time, we always say. I mean, mm -hmm. it was so smart, so, so funny. Fun. Oh my God, obsessed. Yeah. What was that experience like? Uh, Something Rotten was a, an absolute dream. I, I, I stand by this, but I always say that that show is a, just a joy factory for, for mm -hmm. both the people who get to see it and the people who get to do it. It is so much sort of unbridled fun. It is just, its sole purpose is to make you laugh. That, that's mm -hmm. it. It has no, it has no larger statement. It has no larger sentiment. It is literally just there to make you laugh. And they do such a good job of it. And the, the score, and it's the same writing team as Mrs. Doubtfire. So they know mm -hmm. funny. Getting to tour that, that show part, not, not to like bring things down with politics, but to get to tour that show during like Trump, yeah, that was, yeah. was was also a, a real gift 
because it was just letting people go and have two and a half hours where they can just laugh and stop panicking, you know, and uh, it, it was a treat. And I, I would tour. Some people like don't like touring. I am obsessed with touring. I would tour for the rest of my life, if I could, it, it it's the best way to see the world because, you know, you get to a city, you have an another opening night where you get to be, you know, to celebrate your show again afresh with a bunch of people who have been waiting for your show to get there. You know, in, oh, yeah. in New York, there's audiences can sometimes have a bit of a chip on their shoulder. It's It's almost like they come in going like, OK, Broadway, prove yourself, you know, mm -hmm. especially with new shows. But if you're touring a show. The people in that city have been listening to the album, waiting for that show to get there. And there is such a mutual gratitude that meets in those theaters that uh, there is a, a, an extra special energy uh, touring. And, and then during the day, you get to go explore whatever city you're in. So, you know, you get to Cleveland and you go like, OK, what is there to do in Cleveland? Let's go hiking in Cuy Cuyahoga State Park. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Let's kayak down to the lake let's like th there's all kinds of crazy things that people don't even know are happening in cleveland and uh that you get to do that in every city you hit like you look at you an ambassador for for cleveland right here i, I love, love it. it did you also spend some time in seattle with chaplin or was that at la jolla that was la jolla playhouse yeah okay okay, okay. so that was an out-of-town tryout as well and this was this was your your tony nomination was for playing this iconic change my legend life. yeah um, what was that experience like? And, and how did that actually come into your life? It was crazy. So I was doing a show called Johnny Baseball about the Red Sox curse at the American Repertory Theater in Boston. And my agent called me and said, hey, they're doing a bio musical about Charlie Chaplin uh, and they want you to come in for it. My only experience with Charlie Chaplin up until that point was that my great aunt Marion, my entire life, told me that I looked like Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> and I kind of knew the silhouette. Like the, the yeah, bowler right. hat and the mustache and the cane. That, that was kind of it. Uh, and now I'm angry that it took doing the show for me to familiarize myself with him and his body work because everything is derivative of his genius. When you Once you've seen it, you go like, oh, my God, every joke I've ever laughed at in a movie is a version of a joke that he already did in 1916. <laughs> so I went in and I auditioned. And it was I took the Amtrak train down from Boston. I auditioned for the show. It was just doing sides and a song. And then I got another callback and I, because I was up in Boston, they were having me come down every Monday on my day off from the show in Boston on the Amtrak train for another callback. Well, six callbacks later, a little over two months, they say, okay, come back tomorrow morning and have a two minute chaplain -y thing ready. I was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> so I go home and I'm like trying to come up with a bit. And my wife again, I'm so lucky to have her said, um, well, why don't you bring music so you're not like completely hung out to dry with a silent room? And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So I start flicking through like the classical music playlist on my phone and I had Flight of the Bumblebee. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to bring that and a fly swatter and I'm going to fight an invisible fly and lose. That's it. And I fell asleep. <laughs> and I woke up the next morning, got on the Amtrak train with earbuds and a fly swatter. I'm sure they all thought I was crazy. <laughs> like trying to plan this bit in the train car on my way. Here's where the story gets really crazy. So maybe three months before this audition process, my great aunt Marion, the woman who told me my entire life, I look like Charlie Chaplin passed away. And I was on the Amtrak to my final callback when her daughter called me and said, Hey, we were going through mom's stuff and we found a six foot portrait of Chaplin. She painted in 1978. Do you want it? <laughs> I said, I am on an Amtrak train 
to a final callback to play Charlie Chaplin in the musical about him on Broadway. And she said, oh, that's amazing. Well, it, jokingly, if you get it, you have to hang it in your dressing room. Well, the people listening won't be able to see this, but I can show you. This is what my great aunt Marion painted in 1978. Wow. Oh, incredible. Right. It's so beautiful. And it's huge. Um, it's so, <laughs> so then I got it and we went out to the La Jolla Playhouse and we completely, you know, did what wonderful out of town tryouts do. And you re-explore and you learn a lot. And then we came in, did a workshop and then we came to Broadway. And then um, I was so beyond floored when I got a Tony nomination that that day, that moment is seared in my memory. I was watching it on my laptop. At, you know, it's what, what, eight o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And they announced it. And uh <laughs> And they said my name and I went, holy shit. And my phone went ting. And I looked down and it was a text message from my mother that said, holy shit. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Oh, I'll never it. But, but working on that show, I got to collaborate with a clown named Dan Kamen, uh, who's written six books on Chaplin. He was Robert Downey Jr.'s coach on the film, like knows as much as there is to know about him. And he helped me get inside you know, how to tell stories without words mm. in a way that has stayed with me. I have one tattoo and it's a little hat and mustache on my wrist. Yeah. And it's because of of him and, and the, the way that that form of storytelling got inside me. And once once you've explored that, you can't turn it off. And I think anyone who comes to see Mrs. Doubtfire is whether they know it or not, is seeing results of that work uh, studying Chaplin just in how to physically tell story. It's a tool set that I think a lot of actors don't realize is at their disposal until they've sort of done a deep dive. Uh, like I had to, like I was grateful enough to do for Chaplin. The way that you speak, it's, it's, it wouldn't surprise me if you directed one day because you strike me as someone who'd be like the actor's director. Who, oh, I'd love who to. Who really can help people. I know you've, I read online that you've gone back to your high school and, and directed some things as which, well. But... Which I swear to God, I think is the mo one of the most valuable things I've ever done in my life is going back and directing the musical at my old high school for four years because it changes the way you think about it. When mm -hmm. you when you are the person who is, you know, and if you're directing at a high school, you're usually the director, choreographer, lighting designer, set designer, <laughs> you have $1,000 to put on the show. Yeah, right. Um, like I remember I had worked at the Paper Mill Playhouse many, many times and I was directing at my old high school and I thought, oh, we're doing Camelot. I want to have moving lights. And the school was like, here are the 12 lights we own and none of them move. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, I want to rent a moving light. Well, how much are moving lights? Well, they're $1,300 each for whatever. And well, they gave me $1,000 to put on the show. <laughs> so suddenly I'm going like, hmm, I wonder if Ben Vereen, who I had just done I'm Not Rappaport with on Broadway, would come back to my high school and do a concert if we paid him well. And then we could charge more because it's Ben Vereen. And then we could fundraise money to have lights. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, oh my God, when I was walking around backstage at the paper mill and I saw that door for the development office, that's what they do in there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the director says, I want this. And they said, we can't afford that. And then the people in the development department call Ben Vereen. That's what's happening in the development department. Like <laughs> I, you just start to have a larger perspective on the whole thing and i think that makes you a better actor director core i mean whatever your medium is i think it makes you better at it having a larger perspective so i cherish those years at my old high school it really made me better
I need to know, did Ben Vereen do the concert and he, did you get the moving light? He, he did not. He did not do the concert, but I did get like 12 of my friends from Broadway to come back and do a, like a group concert. Oh, cool. Um, and, and we did. We, we got we got moving lights for for Camelot. We also I had a friend who was working at the TDF costume collection at the time. And I went there to get armor for the nights. And I'm looking around with my size sheet of all these kids who I'd measured the night before. And I'm walking around the TDF costume warehouse looking for, you know, armor. And my friend comes over and says, like, wait, how many kids do you have? And I said, 12. He goes, come with me. And he gets a key and unlocks this back room at TDF where they keep the Met costumes. (laughs) And suddenly he brings me over and he's like, there are 12 night and shining armor outfits here with different family crest chest plates and real chain mail. That I'll Incredible. give you. That I'll give to you for the same price. So these kids got to wear like Met Metropolitan and <laughs> Opera armor, but cut to me going like, "I got that for a bargain." Well, their <laughs> one deal was that I had to get them dry cleaned before I returned them, and the only dry cleaning place in my town charged by weight by the pound. So I gave them twelve <laughs> things of chain mail. It was fourteen hundred dollars. Oh my god! <laughs> no. <laughs> oh my god. I'm so curious, Rob, because we're talking about your high school and it's making me think about a question we ask all of our guests about that moment when you realize you love the arts. Maybe it was in high school, maybe it was sooner, or maybe it was even later. That ring of keys moment, the moment of recognition when you saw something, consumed something, or felt something that made you feel like, oh my gosh, I love this. The moment of my heart saying hi, which is maybe the sweetest lyric I've ever heard in my life and <laughs> it makes me stop. Um, but, that is uh, so cute. You're right. Oh my God. Oh my God. Can you hear my heart saying hi? And also hi, that melody mm-hmm. kills me. Anyway, Janine Tesori. Genius. I love when the guests um, actually know the reference. It's very fun for us. Sometimes I think they think we're lunatics when we refer to this moment. There's been a few. They don't deserve to be on I, your show. There's been a few. <laughs> No, and then I feel stupid. I'm like, oh, wait, this is dumb. (laughs) Not at all. Trust yourself, friends. I know know the exact moment. So I had done my first high school show, which was Anything Goes. I was 15. And a friend of mine said, there is a little community theater called the Bergen County Players in Oradell, New Jersey. And they are doing a show about a guy who kills people and puts them in meat pies and other people eat them. And my 14-year-old brain was like, wait, what? So I go to audition for this show that I know nothing about. And at, a, at my first audition outside of my high school. And I walk into this little community theater, which I thought was as professional as it gets, because in my mind, it was a building that sole purpose was putting on plays. Because to me, it was like you put on plays in a gym, a cafetorium, like a multi-purpose right. room. Yeah. So I was like, wait, all they do here is shows? Like, this is amazing. And like year round? Wait, what? So I go in and I said to the woman next to me, I don't know the show. Who should I audition for? And they said, probably Toby. And I said, okay. So I go up and I'm like, hi, I'm Rob McClure. And I'll be auditioning uh, (laughs) for the role of Toby. And I proceeded to sing Stars from Les Mis. Wow. Which if you don't know, is maybe the worst choice for Toby and Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Possible. But it was like one show tune that I knew. (laughs) So I did not get it. But needless to say, I knew the show was happening. So two months later, I went to opening night of Sweeney Todd at the Bergen County Players in Ordell, New Jersey. And Sweeney Todd has a crazy like M. Night Shyamalan style Alfred Hitchcock surprise ending. It does. And I started to cry 
And I remembered thinking tomorrow there's going to be another audience in here who doesn't know that's coming. I have to be there to watch them find out. And it was every Friday, Saturday, Sunday for three months. It was $12 a ticket. I rode my bike and I saw every performance of Sweeney Todd at the Bergen County Players. And by the end of the run, I wasn't watching the show. I was watching the audience watch the show because I was so smitten with how they were being manipulated the way that I had been manipulated. Because once you know the secret ending, you can't unsee it. And it's there. It's right in front of you the whole time. So watching them go on the ride the way I had gone, I that was it. That was when I knew like, okay, I don't know whether or not, I don't know in what way. Frankly, I don't care in what way. I just need to be around where this magic trick is happening. So I joined that community theater. I ran lights. I ran sound. I ran wardrobe. I worked in the box office. I ushered. I did whatever because I just wanted to be around it. And on closing night of Sweeney Todd, the cast invited me, my 15-year-old self, to the cast party. (laughs) Uh, And your listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm going to show you. They got me a cast jacket for a show that I was not in, that I still have. The Bergen County Players, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Um, This jacket is from 1997. And I, when I got to have that dinner, full circle moment, with Stephen Sondheim at his Mm -hmm. apartment, I had him sign the Bergen County Players playbill. Perfect. From 1997, which is framed and hanging in my dressing room at the Stephen Sondheim. That, <laughs> oh my God. It's all too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Bring back show wow. jackets though. Honestly, what, what, what I know, happened to show jackets? I love jackets? a good show jacket. Did you wear it around? I absolutely wore it around. I absolutely oh, did. Yeah. And everyone was like, what is Sweeney Todd? And I was like, funny, you should ask. Here is the one copy of Blockbuster of the George Hearn, Angela Lansbury <laughs> first national tour that I'm going to sit down and make you watch. I was like, <laughs> I was like an evangel- uh, evangelical Sondheimian. <laughs> and you, you are a true lover of the arts and it is so mm-hmm. beautiful oh, to mm-hmm. see. I mean, I, I truly believe it's as close to magic as there mm-hmm. is. I really do, especially live theater, not not just TV and film, which I love doing. But there is something about real people coming into a space with real people. And you sit down and like the book that you open called Playbill. The first thing that happens is they tell you everything you're about to see is not real. Mm-hmm. And here here are the real names and faces of everyone you're about to see pretend to be something they're not. And the house lights go out and we all go. I'll believe anything you tell me like that is such a magic trick, Uh, especially when it's done well, because Mm -hmm. then we really do. Then we really do forget. And now it's an even more powerful magic trick because I will not only forget that this isn't really happening. I'll forget the person to the left of me. I'll forget the person to the right of me on their phone. I'll forget that all three of us are wearing masks. I'll forget. I'll forget all of it. And it's like it's an illusion. It's like I'm so in love with it. Amazing. <laughs> I'm obsessed with your, with your, um, just how I can see it in your eyes, how much it means to you. And it reminds me that I love it too. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, we talk about the arts and I work in it and, you know, it's, it's a part of my life now in a bigger way than it was when I was, you know, 15 and seeing the local community theater and just being enthralled in the murder mystery or yeah. the sound of music, whatever it was that I was seeing. And, um, you know, it's, it, it brings me back. It makes me feel emotional, to be honest with you, just about how magical it is and how much we missed it for 18 months. Yeah, I'll never take it for granted again. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's something there's something about like when when you are in love with something. People who have are yet to find that thing for themselves, like to mock enthusiasm in other people mm-hmm. who have found something that they deeply care about. 
So when I was walking around my town with a Sweeney Todd cash jacket on, oh, I got all kinds of shit for that, you know, Mm -hmm. but but I love doing things like this because I get to talk to the two of you <laughs> and we all get to remind each other like, no, we, no, but, but we do. We do love it. And, and I don't have to apologize for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Well, I feel like I could chat with you forever yeah. about we, we didn't even touch so I know. much of your career. <laughs> Before we move on to the, our closing segment, have you ever played Sweeney? No, no. Do you want to? I would love, love to play Sweeney. I had an idea for I'm not kidding. Uh, and this was actually like a pandemic idea mm-hmm. of a one man Sweeney Todd, because I've always thought like, oh, I'm not really perfect for any part in that show. I'm not really like per- maybe maybe in like 15 years, I'll like uh, people will buy that. I am a vengeful monster. Um, <laughs> but like so I thought like, ooh. I wonder if there's a way to creatively tell that story. And there was a production that I saw and don't laugh. At, uh, of the Fantastics at a little theater in Philadelphia called the Mum Puppet Theater with puppets that I was like, I wonder if you could do a really screwed up version of Sweeney Todd with one dude and a whole bunch of gory puppets. Um, yeah. And I'm telling you, if, if we had, I hope we don't have another pandemic, but if you give me 18 months with nothing to do again, it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> do you have every line memorized? Is that is yep. it live with you like that? Okay. Well then I think you could do it a couple years ago, maybe more than a couple. Was it Patrick Stewart or Alan Cumming did um, Macbeth or some Alan Shakespeare Cumming. Yeah, where he, the concept was he was in a, in a mental institution or something like that. And he yep. played all the roles. There's some, yes. maybe something conceptual like that i have another i have another concept which after we sign off i'll tell you all so right. somebody doesn't steal it all right all right uh, okay. <laughs> okay. okay that's good you're smart you have to keep your best ideas for yourself yeah. or for or like dylan always says I'm he's saving it. his best stories for, his for the book. book good but anyway okay so before we say goodbye we like to end on a dose of drama something to leave our listeners with it could be something you want to recommend something you've been watching something you just saw something you want to rant about rave about anything and i am here to share mine i'm going to kick this off and I, I'm feeling dramatic about something. Oh. I I watched all 10 episodes of the Hulu original series, How I Met Your Father. Oh. And to quote Trinity the Tuck from RuPaul's Drag Race, where are the jokes? It, I love Hilary Duff and I loved the cast, but it was not a funny oh, show. Bummer. And I'm so disappointed, but I want to tell the listeners that if you ride it out to episode 10, there is a moment that had my jaw on the floor and I almost started sobbing because it reminded me of some of the like fun parts of the original. Um, So I don't necessarily recommend How I Met Your Father unless you're a Hilary Duff or Kim Cattrall super fan. Not that I am, but you know, they're good, but it's not as funny as it should have been. And I don't know why they just honestly hire the writers from the original because it makes that one look like the funniest show that ever existed. So Well, they tried it. They tried it. They tried they tried it and it's going to get a season two. So I'm hopeful that they can, you know, I think many shows should hopefully get a season two so they can figure out what works, what doesn't and improve for, for what happens next. Especially these streaming shows that are all made in like a bubble and then released. I think they don't, they don't have any chance for any sort of reaction feedback or anything. So hopefully it's funny in season two. I hope for your sake, Connor. I want, I want Hillary Duff to succeed. I, I, I love I think she's her. doing fine. She's yeah. fine. Um, <laughs> Dylan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dylan, do you have a dose of drama? I do, and it's about the concept of like grabbing a coffee with someone. You know, people are like we should grab a coffee sometime or do it. Most of the time, we don't ultimately do it, 
but here I'm here to tell <laughs> you to do it. It's really fun. It's energizing. I love that idea. Yeah. It can be like 30, 45 minutes max. It's not lunch. You're not necessarily eating something. Pressureless. Yes. And Pressureless. It, usually it happens earlier in the day. So you have somewhere to be. You have it hard out usually. It's a great way to catch up with someone. I am so into that. And do you know how many people I've said like, when I'm back in the city, we should grab mm-hmm. car and you don't. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to take you up on that. Yeah. Why not? You're right. It doesn't have to be like a, like a two hour endeavor. No. It can be something no. quick. And also if it's somebody that you're not sure how it will go, mm-hmm. it can be 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. You can, right. You can, you can pretend that you could, you could pretend anything you need to oh, pretend. Oh, they called me in earlier than I realized. I'm so sorry, yes, but you know. Because it's coffee. Exactly. I can drink a cup of coffee in 10 minutes or I can drink a cup of coffee in an hour. It depends. I, I will be pacing the beverage to my enjoyment of the visit. Yes. See, you get it. You get it. Um, I think grabbing coffee gets a bad rep, but pursue it. Rob, do you have a dose of drama before we say goodbye? Okay. Speaking of gets a bad rap, but try it. Okay. I have always and will continue to always have very passionate dramatic feelings about the television show Lost. Uh, I am full on obsessed and madly in love with Lost. Yeah, we love it. And too. nothing makes me angrier than people who didn't get it. If you say either I hate Sweeney Todd or I was so mad at the end of Lost, they were dead the whole time. No, they weren't. And the writers of that show are smarter than you. Mm-hmm. So I can't help you. Yes. <laughs> I get so mad when people think they were dead the whole time on Lost. So what I will tell people is if you've never seen Lost six seasons, I promise it will be the ride of your life. But you have to invest in it as much as it invests in you. And you have to be down for smart. You have to be down to like lean in and pay close attention. Because if you do, the payoff is enormous and Speaking of you, want, if you want to see dramatic, I am calling you right now. My laptop is on a coffee table that is made out of the submarine door from Lost, which I bought at an auction and turned into a coffee table. Not Penny's wow. boat. <laughs> <laughs> That's insanely incredible. So you you asked for drama. I gave you drama. I'm obsessed with you. I, I can remember that was like one of the first big finales I remember being excited for in real time. The series finale. You had to watch it. Yeah, series finale. And it, it just makes you respect the whole journey. I want to know everyone's favorite Lost character real quick, because I will start and it is 100% Juliet. I don't know why I have such a, a relationship with her to this day. I love Elizabeth Mitchell. I think she can do no wrong. Her, her final scene when she's smashing the bomb and she's like, you son of a bitch, die or whatever. One of the best moments ever oh, okay here we are here we oh are oh my god we're looking at a oh. at a, a collection of lost memorabilia in rob's applebee's theater applebee's room. no you do i love hard. the like wait i love that we're, we're sort of doing like audio description right now yes. it makes me so happy that like wait let me tell you what you're looking at so to the left <laughs> is a figurine of john locke standing yes. On a and, and that's a that's a piece of the actual plane wing from the set, which I also got. Incredible. Um, go go on about Juliet. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. I just think that she's dynamic. I think that she's she was an early wave feminist of our time. And Elizabeth Mitchell from the Santa Claus also, movies. <laughs> I also love that 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 show was all about long form character art. Mm-hmm. That people, the characters started one person at the beginning of those six seasons and ended as a completely different human being having been completely transformed. It's not like these television shows where like 
I know your function on this show and you maintain that function. They all mm -hmm. grew so profoundly over the course of the writing of that show. And it also goes uh -huh. back to what you were saying, Connor, about like having time to develop a story in a way that's bouncing off of how the show's being received. And uh, that show did that so it was it became a cultural thing. And I also blame Lost for like the notion of gr group watching. Oh, like, yeah. All of a sudden, like 12 friends had like, OK, every Thursday we like order Chinese food and we all sit and we watch Lost together. And then we hang out for two and a half hours after the episode talking about the episode. Like, uh -huh. That wasn't a thing. Like all of these group Game of Thrones parties would not have happened if Lost didn't like set up that culture. Uh-huh. I was actually just thinking about Game of Thrones because Lost was fearlessly killing off characters before Game of Thrones did. True story. And characters who maybe it was before their time to go. You think of Libby and Anna Lucia, like that episode, things like that, that the happened way before. The fact that you did not know we were going to be talking about Lost tonight and you're pulling out <laughs> Libby and Anna Lucia means that I am in the right place tonight. You are. Oh, man. We contain multitudes, Rob. Yep. <laughs> it's a masterpiece. I mean, my favorite characters, other than Juliet, I'm a huge Juliet fan. Sun and Jin, the oh. beautiful from start to finish, this this relationship, everything about it and stunning performances. It really did so much for representation. It did so much for, you know, it was scenes from a marriage, but played out on the island and off of it. I mean, beautiful. I love them. Love. Yeah, mm -hmm. I will always be uh, in love with John Locke because I feel like when I am evangelizing Lost, as I am right now, yes. what I yes. tend to tell people is the first four episodes will be like two hours and 45 minutes, almost like watching a movie. And I always mm -hmm. say, if you're going to if you want to find out if Lost is for you, sit down like you're going to watch a movie and watch the first four episodes in one sitting. Because the fourth episode is an episode called Walkabout that is all about who John Locke was before the island. And if at the end of that episode, you do not want to watch any more Lost, that's fine. We just can't be friends. <laughs> like, right, right. I, I remember I, how the episode ends and it is chills ex inducing. Exactly. And, and so at that character's arc. And the ride that that actor gets to go on, especially in those last two seasons, the things that that actor gets to play, the the characters that that plural yeah, that that right. actor gets to play over the course of that show is really uh, it's uh, I, I think Terry O'Quinn is is one of our greatest living actors and he gets to flex all those muscles on the show and Desmond because he's everyone's constant. And oh, if you don't know what that is. means, watch Lost. <laughs> right. Oh my God. We're going on about Lost, but I think maybe best season finale ever was the twist at the end of season three, when of course we find out. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I should spoil it for listeners, but you know, it's a show that's centered around, like think Orange is the New Black, where you're seeing flashbacks every episode. But in season three in the finale, they're actually flash forwards. And it's such a twist. It changes the whole show forever. Oh my God. Obsessed. Well, the, twist, the, the twist becomes in in how they're telling the story and not just the story itself, but how you how information is being revealed to its audience. It was so mm -hmm. it was so thoughtfully crafted. That's the thing that I love so much about that show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Love. I'm so glad you brought up Lost. I'm ready for a rewatch. I, I, I have not revisited it ever oh. since originally watching it with our dad. And now it's time to. Well, after once I could go down a wormhole right now, that would be way too nerdy. But if you have 10 minutes after we log off, I'm going to tell you something about Lost that I will tell anyone who, uh, after listening to this, goes on that journey. Just 
find mm-hmm. me on the socials and say, I, I listened to you with Dylan and Connor. And I, so I watched all six seasons and it was amazing. Then I'll tell you what I'm about to tell them once we log on. Okay. I love it. All oh right, my God. Deal. Well, Rob, listen, you have given us so much this last hour. And I am, I came into this being a super fan and now I'm like, a super, super, super fan. <laughs> I am in awe yeah. of you as a performer, but also you you are a wonderful and genuine human. So thank you for the, your generosity and time. It's been it's been seriously amazing. This is one for the books. Oh, Absolutely. Well, I, your uh, your passion is contagious. And um, I saw it when I watched the episode with you and Annalise. I was like, oh, these they you're my kind of people. You know, you, you, <laughs> you don't you don't filter caring about things, which I think is a beautiful thing. Thank you for saying that. It's it's tough in this business. A lot of jaded stuff yeah. happens, and screw them. You know, we we love it all. Yeah, and of course, people should follow you on on Twitter and come, Instagram. Come you're find me. Rob McClure, and then you're McClure Rob in that order. Twitter is Rob McClure, and then that's right because Instagram, Rob McClure, McClure was Rob. taken on Instagram, so it's McClure hmm. Rob on Instagram. But you can find me. You'll find. Me. Yeah, and if if you're if you're Tuning in for the first time, anyone, follow us at the Drama Podcast. Connor, Connor McDowell, me at Dylan McDowell. I'm doing it right now. Oh, hey. <laughs> and uh, Rob, you're a dream. And Connor. Yes, Dylan. I will see you next time. Drama. Drama.